Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say, friend, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick grapes from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. Good people bring good things out of good, stored up in their hearts. And evil people bring evil things out of evil stored up in their hearts. For out of the overflow of one's heart, the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, when you do not do what I say? I will show you what people are like when, um, who come to me and hear my words and put them into practice. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But those who hear my words and do not put them into practice are like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Well, good morning. It is lovely to see you all here, and I wish I could see you all the other end of the camera um, in your homes, but bless you where you are as well. This morning, we're starting a new series called A Twist in the Tale, T-A-L-E. We're looking at Jesus's parables, or at least some of them, as Luke tells them to us. Some parables have a really obvious meaning, apparently, and others, it's a little bit more obscure. Some have the feel of real life about them, and some look more like a fable. Some are really long stories with layer upon layer upon layer of application, and others are not much more than a short word sketch, and often those are a little bit ridiculous to help make them memorable. Well, the ones we're looking at today mostly come in that final category. They come thick and fast in just 12 verses that we're exploring together. We have six of them. And they seem to be focused on eyes, ears, and mouths, a bit like the three wise monkeys. Except... These parables aren't about see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. 
Those are very passive responses to what's going on around you. These bite-sized stories take us much deeper than that. Jesus wants his followers to be people who live with godly integrity. But first of all, let's have a look at the eyes. We're about to enter Wimbledon season, in case you didn't know, it's tomorrow. And in tennis, unless it's an ace, the person who serves the ball will get that same ball hit back towards them. It's kind of what Jesus was saying in the first part of his teaching. What you serve to other people is what you'll get back. Or to put it more along the lines of what Jesus was saying, people will usually respond to you in the way that you treat them. Now that seems really obvious, doesn't it? Of course, someone who's judgmental is more likely to find that other people respond the same way towards them. Someone who's always condemning other people will find that eventually that's how people treat them. It may be self-evident, but for some reason, it doesn't seem to be applied as much as it ought to. And you can see that particularly in modern-day culture if you look at social media. Now, there's lots of good about social media, the way it connects people Uh, in new ways, and particularly during the pandemic, enabling people to stay in touch. But we know that there are also people who write horrendous, cruel, vindictive things on social media. And that sort of behaviour has seriously affected uh, people's mental health and even led to some taking their own life. Christians aren't immune from this. Shamefully, I know that there are some Facebook groups for Baptist ministers where some will level unguarded criticism at others. Now, I'm aware I'm in danger of falling into the very trap I'm trying to avoid. I do try not to be judgmental about others, but to make, people, make Jesus' point, the way I view other people who make those sorts of comments is affected by the comments they've made. That's the kind of thing Jesus had in mind when he warns about receiving from the same measure you use. But it's not all negative. When I was growing up in Exmouth, there was a shop just across the road. And amongst many things there, all I can really remember are shelves and shelves with big jars of sweets on them behind the counter. And when we got our pocket money, we used to go across the road and order something like a quarter pound of lemon sherbet or chocolate bonbons or something like that. And the shopkeeper would pour them into the scales from the big jar, waiting until the needle just gets to the right point. And when it got to the right point, they'd give it one little more tip so a few more fell in. That's the sort of generosity that kept us going back there because we knew we'd get just that little bit more. And so they got back what they gave to us in regular custom. And Jesus is commending a similar sort of approach. If you are known as a merciful, forgiving person, you're more likely to find that people treat you the same way. If you give people the benefit of the doubt, they're more likely to give you the benefit of the doubt. If you're a generous person, people are more likely to be generous towards you. Just imagine if the whole world was like that. 
Just imagine if this church was like that. Now, Jesus does know that we don't always get a positive response from our kindness. Because remember, he also encourages his followers to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile. You wouldn't need to do those things if people responded graciously to your gracious act. What Jesus is doing here, and in many of the parables, is he's exaggerating to make a point. In Jewish culture in those days, the use of hyperbole, exaggeration to make a point, was really common. And you'll see it in lots of Jesus' parables. What Jesus is saying is he wants us, his followers, to be overflowing with his love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And he says, in effect, whatever measuring cup you use is the one others will use for you. But what he says is actually you'll receive even more. How is that possible? Well, just imagine if you are gracious and generous with other people, and everybody you are gracious and generous with is gracious and generous with you, there'll be far more grace and generosity coming back in your direction, won't there? Jesus uses this phrase, it'll be pressed down and and then poured into your lap. That kind of sounds messy, doesn't it? But actually poured into your lap, uh, it relates to the fold that they used to put in, in their robes to act a bit like a pocket. So in other words, you won't be able to hold what you receive back in your hands. You'll have to fill your pockets too. May God's Spirit help us to be known as gracious, generous people. May we be aware of the measure we use. The next image Jesus gives is of the blind leading the blind. And in my mind, it brings to to attention visually impaired Paralympic runners and riders who are attached to a sighted runner or have a, a sighted cyclist on the front of a tandem. It would be ridiculous for the people guiding them to be visually impaired too. Now, as I thought about this parable, I thought, it's a little bit politically incorrect for today, isn't it? Joking about those sorts of things. So let's move beyond the parable to the point. The point Jesus is making is we should avoid following people who look like they know what they're doing, but ultimately will lead us into a ditch. And in the parable, I think he had in mind the religious leaders of his day who had been blinded to God's true nature. They weren't leading people into a relationship with God. And we have blind guides in our culture today. We're told in our culture that unrestricted capitalism is the solution to the world's problems. We can buy our way out of our solutions, out of our problems, into a wonderful new world order. Well, not if you're poor. Not if you're one of those who are exploited for profit. Others might say, well, politics is the only way you're going to change society. Politics is good. Politics is good, helpful, but it can't change the human heart. Those things are not wrong in themselves, but they've got the look of, well, there's something right about them, yet they lack godly transformational 
love. And it's not just beyond the walls of church either. To use a historical example, there were people who were making profits from the transatlantic slave trade. And they defended slavery based on their reading of the Bible. And they convinced people for centuries that it was right. It had the look of something that was right, but was blatantly unjust. And it wasn't until William Wilberforce and his allies forced a change in the law that that was outlawed. It's quite possible to blindly follow others without question. So I want to encourage you always check teaching you receive to see if it's in line with two things. Is it in line with God's love Is it in line with God's justice? Don't follow blind guides. A good teacher enables their students to go beyond their own ability. In talking about teachers and students, Jesus was again, I think, aiming his focus at the religious leaders of the day. Their teaching was based on their own distorted image of God as someone to be feared, someone to be appeased, rather than someone to be loved and embraced. And so their teaching kept people in the same place that they were in, distant from God. And today, well, I know people who are almost in a fan club for certain preachers or worship leaders. We shouldn't be idolizing other people. We should be following Jesus. And churches collectively, I know, it's very easy for us to adopt the latest trend in the hope of being a successful church. But that can take our focus from the important task of sharing Jesus. The most purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive, missional, community-based church is no good if it's not first and foremost Jesus-focused and putting his teaching into practice. If our focus isn't on showing Jesus to others and allowing them to be embraced by God, then our teaching is limited by our own limits. And now we're going to spec savers. Religious teachers in Jesus' day had got things so wrong that actually they were really busy setting all sorts of rules and regulations to protect Israel, the nation, from other nations around them. And thereby excluding those nations from encountering God. In other words, they were pointing out the specks in those nations' eyes. Oh, we can't have anything to do with them Look at how they treat other people or whatever. And they ignored the fact that they were meant to be the light to all the nations, showing people what God was like, what a relationship with him could be. That was their plank. They couldn't see that they were failing to do the thing they had been asked to do. I think that's the heart of this parable. So what about us? What what could our plank be? Well, it's likely to be something that prevents people from seeing Jesus. 
I know of some churches where people are so keen that things meet their preferences, the churchgoers, that they've created an environment that people who don't normally go to church don't want to go to. I know of one church where homeless people used to gather outside the building and the people from the church used to tut about them smoking outside. It makes the place look nasty. They saw the speck of smoking outside the church making the church look bad, not seeing the plank of their own prejudice that was keeping these people away. So if those are the parables that are to do with the eyes, let's move on to the mouth. Even though, actually, the next image Jesus gives us is of fruit trees. The point he makes seems really obvious, doesn't it? Well, we know apples come from apple trees, oranges come from orange trees. The sort of fruit you see reveals the sort of tree it is. So, says Jesus, what we say, what comes out of our mouth, How we say it reveals our heart. The point Jesus makes is really obvious. You can't get grapes from a bramble bush. Of course not. So can words of hate come out of a heart of love. Or the other way around. Jesus is saying we speak from our heart. To apply Jesus' point to what we've been looking at since Easter, we can't bear spiritual fruit if we are not filled with the Spirit. If he isn't changing our heart, then the fruit will not be shown. Why is Jesus concerned about words? Well, we know that words are powerful. And Some words have the power to wound deeply. So do we stop and think before we speak? Do we consider the impact of our words on other people? Nowadays there seems to be a a trend towards passive aggression. It looks right, the words are okay, but actually the heart behind them, the attitude is negative. Or, to turn it on its head, are our words words of encouragement, of grace, of truth, of love, of joy, of hope? Do our words reflect the fruit of the Spirit? Recently, several high-profile people have been sanctioned for racist things they wrote or said many, many years ago. So why does that matter now? Well, what we say, what we write, our words reveal our heart. What sort of heart do people see when they look at Mutley Baptist Church? And then we get to the ears. This is one of Jesus' more famous parables, the parable of the builders. I guess any of us who went through Sunday school could probably still sing, the wise man built his house upon the rock. I'm stopping there, don't worry. In an all-age service in my last church, to try and illustrate this parable, we played Jelly Jenga. Got a set jelly, 
and got some young people to try and play Jenga on it. It doesn't last long. Wobbly foundations are no good. It's a really silly idea to try and play Jenga on a jelly, and that's kind of the point that Jesus was trying to make here. Now, I wonder what you think this parable is all about. It does seem to be about foundations, doesn't it? And the, tra- the Sunday school teaching I can remember was, build your life on Jesus and you'll have firm foundations for your life. And yes, absolutely. But remember, Jesus was often contrasting his teaching with that of the religious people of his day. So maybe Jesus is saying, well, my teaching is the rock and the teaching of the religious people is the sand. But there's more to it than that, because Jesus says at the beginning that anyone who hears his words and puts them into practice is like the wise person who builds their house on a rock. So maybe the rock isn't so much about building on Jesus as putting his teaching into practice. That will give us a a firm foundation for life. Well, yeah. But before any mention of his teaching, Jesus asked this question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Maybe this parable is about what it means to call Jesus Lord. And I think that this parable is actually the culmination of all the others. They're leading up to this moment. Because if Jesus is Lord, we'll seek to live in the way that he teaches. The things he's just been saying will be the sorts of things that with God's Spirit's help we will try to put into practice. Now, when you read the gospel narratives, lots of people call Jesus Lord. So we might be tempted to think it's a bit like calling him Mr. or Sir. And to an extent, that that is correct. But right here, Jesus is making a bigger point. Remember, this was the heyday of the Roman Empire. And all people within the Roman Empire's boundaries were expected to be able to say an oath of allegiance. Caesar is Lord. To say Jesus is Lord is actually an act of subversion. It's an act of defiance. It's a statement saying my allegiance is not to Caesar, it's to the higher power that is Jesus of Nazareth. The man who is God. So Jesus is saying, if that's what you say about me, if that's who you think I am, why don't you do what I say? It's a bit silly, really, isn't it? To call yourself a rebel against the Roman Empire, to align yourself with Jesus, and then not actually have the courage to follow that through. You haven't got that revolutionary allegiance. And I think that helps me think about what the storm could be. Maybe the storm isn't just the turmoil of life. Maybe it's actually persecution for your faith. The storm comes when you're saying Jesus is Lord and Caesar doesn't like it. 
And if we don't put Jesus' teaching into practice, when people challenge our faith, we'll struggle to stand firm. When someone makes fun of you for going to church, if you're not putting Jesus' words into practice, you might respond with words that reveal your true heart. If you're passed over for promotion at work because you are a follower of Jesus and you're showing godly integrity, you're standing up for Jesus as Lord. If you're passed over for promotion at work because people see a hypocritical plank in your eye when you're busy pointing out the specks in others, you might be calling him Lord, but you're not doing what he says. To call Jesus Lord means he's the one to whom we give our allegiance. He comes before anyone and everything else, including ourselves. And we do it regardless of the cost because he's worth it. If Jesus really is Lord, then following him makes absolute sense. And his teaching, which makes incredible sense, is the foundation on which we build our life. We seek to implement his extravagant, inclusive agenda, which he showed to the poor and the outcasts, those who'd been rejected and marginalized actually by the religious people of his day. If Jesus is Lord, we will love God with all our being and we will love our neighbor as ourselves. If Jesus is Lord, we will forgive as we have been forgiven. Lavishly. If Jesus is Lord, we won't be judgmental people. We won't be people who worry about tomorrow and so much more because we trust that God knows our needs and we will seek to live in the way that Jesus teaches. People who say Jesus is Lord don't pursue money and stuff. They invest in what lasts for eternity. And over the coming weeks, some of the parables that we will explore together will unpack those sorts of things. Just, however, in these six images that Jesus gives us, some of them apparently silly stories, there's some really deep questions, challenging questions for us. Are we judgmental people? Are we condemning of other people? Are we blindly following blind guides? Are we following a teacher who doesn't have the answers? Are we busy looking for specks in other people's eyes and ignoring planks in ours? What do our words reveal about us? What are the foundations of our life? Is Jesus Lord? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your teaching. And if we're honest, some of this teaching this morning has made us feel uncomfortable. We're sorry for those times, for those occasions, for those attitudes that your teaching has revealed today, which are falling short of the standards our Heavenly Father asks of us.
We thank you that sometimes these stories are like a mirror and we see ourselves in them. And we pray that your spirit will help us not only to receive the forgiveness that you offer, but also to live in a way that honors you. We pray he will help us not just to hear your words, but to put them into practice. And we pray, Lord Jesus, pour out on us your grace, your wisdom. Help us once again to focus on you. Be aware of our own shortcomings. And speak words that affirm and bless. May Jesus be Lord in our lives in this church and beyond. Amen.